Well, Merry Christmas. You know, when you uh, peel back the the candy canes, Santa Claus, and all the uh, Christmas decorations, you're still left wondering, what is this holiday really all about? Well, that's what we're talking about today is Christmas and the incarnation of our Lord. And our guest for this interview is Pastor Dale Dumpereth. He's pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in McPherson, Kansas. Pastor, welcome to Table Talk Radio. Morning, Evan. Thank you. All right. Uh, so here we have uh, the, uh, a popular celebration of Christmas. You have Santa Claus. You go to the mall. Everybody's trying to sell you uh, every present you can think of. Uh, but what is what is Christmas really all about? You've already said it. That Christmas is the incarnation of our Lord. The fact that God took on flesh in the child of baby Jesus, and he did this that he might save mankind. Okay, then let's talk about that person of Jesus, um, and, and what, what does Christianity claim who, who Jesus is and what he, what he is here to do? To begin with, we affirm the two natures of Christ, and that is the fact that he is God. He is a second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And we also maintain that he is man, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he had flesh and has flesh, that as a baby he pooped his pants and nursed at his mother's breast, and he did all the things that other little babies do other than sin. So central to our thought of who Christ is is the fact that he differs from all of us in that he is a God-man. Now, as God-man, he came to live in our place, to live under the law, but he kept the law. He never broke a single command, a single will of his father. He kept it all in our place. And then, after his three years of ministry, at the conclusion thereof, he suffered the penalty that we all deserve for our sins by his suffering at the hand of uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jews, and the Roman emperor, the Roman soldiers. He was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. And it's that resurrected Christ, the one who's ascended into heaven, that we, we long for his return on the last day. Do we then confess that uh, Jesus has its beginning in Christmas? Could you say that one more time? Do, do Christians then confess that, that Jesus begins or starts at Christmas? In other words, uh, Jesus didn't exist, uh, and the second person of the Trinity didn't exist until uh, he was born of a Virgin Mary. Jesus is the name of the baby that was born. The Son of God existed before conception. Uh, so as Christians, we confess that, that the man we know is Jesus, the God-man we know is Jesus, has eternally existed as the Son of God. As a matter of fact, in, in a text from John that we'll look at later, we'll see that he's the only begotten Son of the Father. Uh Along with that, there, there's been much debate in uh, church history over the uh, the relationship to God the Father and God the Son. Uh, there, were, there were many who would say then that, that Jesus is of a, a similar substance. Uh, would you tell us then what is the, the Christian confession of, of Jesus' relationship to God the Father? Okay, Jesus' relationship to God the Father is that they, they, share, they share the same essence or, or being. Uh, all heresies in regard to the Trinity either violate one of two things. Uh, here are the two things which must be maintained. First, that God is one. In other words, they have the same essence. And second, that uh, there are three persons. 
So any heresy in regard to the Trinity can be examined according to those. And for example, you would find that the Mormons deny the unity of God, that there's one God, but they will affirm that there are many persons. On the other other hand, you will find the Jews and Muslims will claim that they affirm the unity, the oneness. In other words, they worship one God, but they deny the three persons. As Christians, we maintain uh, both that he is uh, the second person of the Trinity, but that he was conceived as the, the baby Jesus. Now, his relationship with his father is distinguished by the terms, or we could say the, the relationship of the three persons in the Trinity are defined by terms, uh, these terms. For example, the Father begets the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, so there you can see the Son does not beget, the Holy Spirit does not beget. So Scripture, by that word, sets, distinguishes the person of the Father for us. And by the fact that the Son is the only begotten, we see that he differs. Uh, he has his own person in regard to the Holy Spirit and so forth. Okay, we're going to take a look through this text of uh, John chapter 1. Now, you and I had ex- exchanged some emails uh, about what text we're going to uh, discuss for this uh, Christmas. And uh, explain to us why John 1 would, would appear as a Christmas text. You know, most people would walk into church uh, the first, uh, the second Sunday after Christmas and, and expect maybe to hear the nativity or, or something of the life of Jesus. But here they have uh, John 1. Would you make that connection for us, Pastor? Sure. Um, I think, actually, we, we've already hit on the reason why. In verse 14 of John, St. John, the first chapter, we read, The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We'll talk about that word lived in a minute. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, or the only begotten Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see uh, the conception, the birth, the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. In other words, this uh, second person of the Trinity took on flesh as the baby Jesus and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt I love. Uh, it's actually the word, it can be translated as tended among us. So he tended, and, and the word is genao, which we can tie then back into the Old, Ta- Old Testament tabernacle. What was the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Place, Old Testament? It was the place where God was manifested himself. It's a place where he came. He was there. He was there to bestow his grace upon his people. So the the tabernacle or the temple was the place of his presence. It's where God was for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now when it speaks of Jesus tending among us, here we have the same word used. It's used of the tabernacle and the temple but in the in the Old Testament, but we see now that Jesus is the place where God dwells among men. And this transition from the temple to Jesus can be seen clearly uh, in the story of the ten lepers. There Jesus healed the ten lepers and sent them on the, on the uh, way to the priest, that the priest might examine them and declare them to be clean. And then after the period, uh, there were numerous rites that they would go through before they were then clean and re- readmitted into the temple. Well, we know of those ten men who left, one returned and came to Jesus. And Jesus questioned, you know, how many did I send? 
Why has there only been one who returned? Now notice what's interesting here. Jesus did not tell the Samaritan, the one man who returned, no, you cannot worship me here. You must go to the temple. Rather, Jesus in that place accepted the worship, the thanks of this man who was grateful that he was healed. So there you see the temple pointed forward to Christ, but during Christ's life there and his ministry at this point, we have uh, this transition between the temple and Christ himself. Therefore, it was good for the men to go to the temple, but it was good for the Samaritan to come to Christ. Let's take. Let's start to read through these verses one at a time. Uh, John mm-hmm. chapter 1, uh, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, what is this talk of the Word in John 1.1? 1, 1? The Word refers to Christ. Later on in John, we'll see that it's, it's referring back to him. So the emphasis made, being made there by the Apostle John, and of course the Holy Spirit is making this statement through him, is that the Word is eternal. He was there at the beginning of creation. The Father determined that he would create the world through the Son, and he did. So this Son was there at the beginning. And not only was the Word with God, but the Word was God. Now, as you know, the Jehovah Witnesses translate this in a different manner. They will conclude it in their New World translation, and the Word was a God. Now, by this, they they deny the, the Trinity. So this is one reason why this text is so important. It upholds the incarnation of Christ, not only in verse 14, which we'll look at later, but already here in, in verse 1. And then uh, verse 2 is similar to that. Almost, uh, we have a little bit of repetition here when verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. Yes, it does. It, it emphasizes that point. It, if you missed it in the first verse, it's hard to escape it in the second. <laughs> Then uh, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that w- that has come into being. Yes. Again here, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing that the creation of the world, all that is, has come into being through him. And I think a lot of times we look at this in particular in regard to, to the creation in the world. In other words, you would say, well, yes, there would be no planets if it weren't for Jesus. There would be no no stars, no moons. But we can also look at this, and as Christ works in the church, we would have no new nature. We would have no new man unless Christ were actively creating today among us. Yesterday we had a baptism here at Grace, and in that baptism, Jesus, through the water and the word, created a new man in that little baby, a believing soul, a redeemed one. Then uh, in verse 4, we already get, uh, you know, because verse 3, it, it seems, as you said, to be t- referring to things of creation, a first, mm-hmm. ar- first article, if you will. And mm-hmm. then Correct. in verse 4, we have, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Is this referring then to salvation? In him was life. Let me see. It certainly applies to that, yes. There, w- there was no life in the beginning. You know, or we would not be in the flesh if it weren't for Christ, and we would not exist at, in salvation if it weren't for Christ. One of the contrasts that's being made here in this verse is the difference between light and, of course, darkness. When it mentions that in him was life, 
It means, and that life was the light of men. It means he is the only light which gives men salvation, which is exactly what you're asking. The implication is that all other knowledge, all other beliefs, all other religions uh, are actually in the darkness. But here in Christ, in the incarnation of Jesus, this light of the world came to dwell among us. And he came that he might proclaim his light and illumine our hearts and minds and souls. This is one concept that was very prevalent in, in the early church's concept of illumination. Uh, the fact that we, apart from Christ, lived in ignorance and in darkness, but when he gives us his light, then we walk in the light, we walk in the truth, we walk in life. Yeah, just as uh, then verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Was there anything else from verse 5 that you didn't already mention? No, no, I covered that. It's hard just to talk about one verse Absolutely. because they flow in the, into the others. Yeah, so let's, let's then look at verse 6. Um, then came a, a man sent from God whose name was John. Yes, this is John the Baptizer. Yesterday in the LW three-year lectionary, which we use, we had the visit of Mary to Elizabeth, and of course Elizabeth was John's uh, mother. When, she, when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, Elizabeth was six months pregnant. So here we have John, six months in the womb. And Mary has probably only been pregnant a couple of days, three or four at this point, because uh, almost immediately after the angel Gabriel spoke to her, she departed for the hill country of Judah, where her relative Elizabeth lived with her husband Zechariah. And it was probably a travel of about three or four days. So even assuming maybe she went a little bit slow, maybe got off a day after she spoke to, to Gabriel, we're still far less uh, than a week old. In other words, Jesus had been conceived less than a week before this point in Mary's womb. And when Mary came into the presence of Elizabeth, John, the baptizer, leaped in his mother's womb. And what I find is interesting, John was sent as uh, the precursor to Jesus, the one to point toward him, the one to prepare the hearts of Israel for Christ. And, of course, later on he did this through his preaching and through his baptism. But now at this time, already in the womb at six months, this baby filled with faith, because, of course, he's worshiping God in the part from faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, there is no worship apart from God. Therefore, John had faith. Already at this point, in the womb, by jumping and leaping, he is pointing toward Christ as God. And what did Elizabeth say? Now, why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord comes to me? So this is the John, the one sent by God to prepare for Jesus, who is already uh, here in Elizabeth's womb. Uh, Pastor, maybe easier if I just read a, a section here, and we can we can okay. talk about the section rather than verse by verse. Sure. Uh, so uh, seven through thirteen reads uh, as following: He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not that light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was a there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, 
who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this then is still talking about John the Baptist and, and what he came to do. Yes, John the Baptist, what he came to do, and the one to whom he pointed Jesus Christ, the light of the world. So John, as we know, the uh, representatives from Jerusalem, the representatives of the Jews came out to John, and they wondered if he was the Christ. See, Israel was anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, and when they heard what John was doing, when they saw him preaching, saw him baptizing, they thought, he might, surely this is the Christ, or could this be the Christ? And John answered, no, he's not the Christ. He's simply a witness to the light. In other words, John's ministry was to point toward Christ. And John said, he must become greater and I become lesser. John was not egotistical in this regard. He knew his, his role, that as a prophet of God, he was sent to prepare the hearts for Jesus. And as his disciples and left, left him and joined Jesus, he rejoiced in this. And I think it's interesting to hear it points out in the one verse you read that John came as a witness to, the, to testify concerning that light. So he testified of Christ. This is the Christ. And he did this so that all men might believe. See, the will of God is that all men might believe, not that some men might believe. Therefore, every man can know with certainty, should know with certainty, God wills me to believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior, because Jesus came for that purpose. So, now, in verse 8... Uh, it says there he was not the light. In other words, John was not the light, but he came only as a witness. In the next verse, it has the true light, uh, gives light to every man. When it says that Jesus is the true light, it sets him apart from all other forms of illumination, all other forms of uh, spiritual formation, all other forms of spiritual knowledge. In Christ alone and in Orthodox Christianity alone, is this light proclaimed and given, giving life, salvation, and knowledge to all mankind? So in verse 10, when it starts speaking about he was in the world, uh, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him, it speaks of Jesus. So here he was. For the first 30 years of his ministry, he walked on earth, and yet there was nothing that would have caught one's eye during those 30 years and thought, ah, this must be the Christ. He walked like a normal man. He looked like a normal man. There was no majesty in him to attract us to him. It wasn't until Christ set Jesus apart at his baptism that finally uh, his true role in the world in the world was beginning to be seen. But the sad thing is when Jesus came to Israel, when he was made manifest in the Jordan, his own did not receive him. In other words, his own people, the chosen ones, the Israelite nation. When he came, he received massive rejection from his very own people. But some did receive him. And to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. He gave them the authority. He made them his children. Yesterday, in baptism, we made a child of God, or rather we should say God adopted a son for himself. He made a child through the water of baptism, and this child now is a member of the family of God and a son of God. So I could rightfully call this little baby brother, because he is my brother in Christ. 
Uh, now, go ahead. No, please continue. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to look at verse 13 now, where it speaks of children not of born of natural descent nor of human decision. It says literally, nor of human will. But when you look at this, it says we're not born of human decision. It calls to mind Billy Graham's magazine, which is Decision Magazine. So Billy Graham says you must make a decision to believe in Jesus. And here the Holy Spirit says, well, uh, you're reborn, but not according to human decision and not according to your human ancestry, not according to bloods, not according to your relationships, your father. You can't say, my father is Abraham, therefore I'm saved. And neither can you say, my, my parents were Lutherans, therefore I'm saved. Or neither can you say, I was confirmed in the Luther, baptized and confirmed in the Lutheran church, therefore I'm saved. None of those things are true but rather we're born of God through his will in the water of baptism, and he works through, mean, through the means of grace, word, and sacrament to keep us in that faith given us in baptism. About a week ago, I was interviewing uh, one of my uh, friends at the seminary, Vicar Pearson, about this movie Religulous made by Bill Maher about a, oh, about a year ago or more. And in, mm-hmm. the, in the movie, he's critical of the reliability of the Gospels because he says that the, the Gospels uh, don't ever record anything of Jesus' life uh, except for when he was born and uh, when he begins his ministry. Um, but here we have the answer, don't we, in verse 10? Uh, you, you said it already, that, uh, that he didn't do anything miraculous. But, but what about when, when Jesus was, was uh, 12 in the temple, uh, proclaiming, explaining uh, uh, things from the Scriptures to the to the uh, priest at the temple. Okay, of Jesus' life, I would say we even have a little more than that. Uh, for example, we have his his birth, but then we also have the Magi coming to him probably about two years later. Right. The Magi did not come on the night of Jesus' birth. That was sometime later. So we have uh, the scriptures recording Jesus about the age of two. We have uh, the flight into Egypt, and then the return later on from Egypt into Nazareth. Uh, so we have all those elements of his early life, but then we do, at the, at the age of 12, find Jesus in the temple, uh, sitting at the feet of the rabbis, learning. And what amazed the rabbis was, was not the fact that he taught them, Jesus didn't do that, but he, the questions he asked revealed a knowledge of Scripture which simply floored them that a 12-year-old boy could have this understanding of God, his word, the temple, all these things was beyond belief. They'd never seen anything like this. Well, there's a reason there had never been God in the flesh sitting in their midst before. So uh, to correctly depict the nativity scenes in people's living rooms, they need to put the wise men you know, halfway across the room or something like that uh, in transit to the, the, to the birth of Christ. Yeah, I would never want them... In the scene, even the in transit kind of throws us off because we know that when, uh, by the time they got to Mary and Joseph, that uh, they were already living in a house. So they were no longer uh, living in the, in the barn-like conditions in which Jesus was born. So the Magi got there sometime later. And the way we try to, f- we can ascertain Jesus' approximate age um, when the Magi came is this. The, when the Magi came, they, they questioned about Jesus, you know, where he'd been born. They had seen his star, which was indication of his birth. Jesus had already been born when the Magi got to Jerusalem. And 
King Herod said, well, go and find him, and after you find him, come back and let me know where he is so I can go worship him too. Of course, you know, he didn't want to worship him. He wanted to go kill him. But the Lord was saved because the Magi were sent somewhere else. When Herod found out that he had been uh, duped, he had all baby boys two years of age and younger in that region killed. So we know that the boy, that Jesus would have been less than two years old at that point. And being as evil as Herod is, he wouldn't have wanted to miss the, this usurper, this new Messiah who had come to be, to be king of the Jews. So he would have probably killed some extra babies just to make sure that he got Jesus, which means Jesus may have been 20 months old at that time or 18 or something. But you can see, because the Magi then came uh, about that point, Jesus was, was much older. So it's entirely inappropriate to have the Magi at the, at the cradle at, on the night of his birth because they simply weren't there. So if, I suppose if I had a, a crèche at my home like that, I might put the uh, the wise men in the garage if I had the crèche in my family room. <laughs> well, one more question about John the Baptist before we move, move on in this gospel. Uh, and that is, uh, here we have uh, John uh, uh, very clearly said here in, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, that he came to testify about that light. Now, why then later do we see John, who is imprisoned uh, for his preaching by, uh, by the order of Herod, uh, then come, sends, sends his disciples asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? I mean, here, here we have John, who, mm-hmm. who has evidently known him growing up, if, if Mary and Elizabeth were, were close at some point. Uh, why, why did John send his disciples asking this question? That's a good question, and commentators disagree on that. But I think uh, I agree with the commentators who insist that even and especially of dead people, we need, need to maintain the Eighth Commandment, which means that we put the best construction on everything. Therefore, because we put the best construction on John's question, we would not then say, well, John was sinful. He now doubted when he was in prison, and he sent his disciples to find out if Jesus were the Christ. Because after all, he had testified clearly, also in John 1, he pointed toward Jesus as he walked by and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So his entire ministry was one of preaching Jesus as this Christ. So I think the best explanation of the question is that he was sending the disciples to um, find out for themselves. They were questioning him, well, could this be the Christ? He's not doing what we expected. Remember, one of the the ideas, the concepts regarding the Messiah was that he would be uh, a son of David, a mighty warrior king, and would throw off the Roman rule. Well, here Jesus has been preaching all this time. He hasn't thrown the Romans off. Could he be the Messiah? So it's entirely possible that John directed them so that they might hear for themselves and believe that Christ was the Messiah. Okay, let's continue then in John 1. I'll read 14 through 18 now. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw, and, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he whom I said, He who, he who comes after me, as a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For, uh, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth realized through Jesus Christ. And no one has, been, no one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten God, who is of the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Okay, here we have then uh, the Word made flesh, which you already touched upon a little bit, but explain this passage more. Okay, the Word became flesh. This is the incarnation of Christ, which is why this is a beautiful text in the LW lectionary for the second Sunday after Christmas. The Word became flesh. The belief, the confession that the Son of God became incarnate, took on flesh and dwelled among us. Now notice it says he only lived lived for a while. He lived for a time. He lived for a fitting season. He lived for the time set apart for him by the Father from all eternity. When Jesus was born, he was born to die. Now, in that way, he differs from all other babies on earth. God's will when he created Adam and Eve was that they would live forever and that their children would live forever. But Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and they had uh, had children, those children would have had eternal life also. So babies are born today, uh, if it were not for sin, if it were not for original sin, they would, uh, if it hadn't been for the sin of Adam, we today would, would still be born with eternal life. So Jesus was born to die. In other words, when the baby Jesus was born, it was with the full intent that he go to the cross and die. One of the amazing things of Jesus' life, for example, you've mentioned him at 12 years old in the temple. Already at that time, he was fully cognizant of the fact that he would suffer and die horribly at the end of his life for the sins of the world. And yet he maintained his faithfulness in in spite of all that. I'm thankful I don't know when I'm going to die. That might tempt me to be unfaithful, to try to get out of it. Um, So the Son of God came and lived for a while. He, he lived his, say, 30 years before he began his public ministry, and then he lived his three years of public ministry and died. And after that, he was buried, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and will return for us. But he was here for a time, but he fully completed his work in that time. Now, John cried out, um, well, no, let me, don't let me not leave verse 14 yet. It says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus came, he was full of grace, full of truth. There was no error on his lips. There was no false doctrine in his teaching. Never did he speak a wrong word. Uh, to put it in Old Testament language, not a word fell from his lips, fell to the ground apart from his lips. They all bore life. So the light of the world came to give light to men, to give them life through his preaching, that they might be in heaven for him forever. In these verses that we're looking at at the end of John, uh, every heresy that I can think of could be combated. For example, the Arians deny that Jesus is co-eternal and co-essential with the Father. In other words, the Arians deny that Jesus shares the same essence. Well, that's denied in these verses. There was a heresy known as Docetism that maintained that Christ you know, wasn't really a human being. He just seemed to be a human being. Well, here there's the emphasis. The Son of God took on flesh, flesh that could be touched, flesh that could be held, flesh that could be carried to the tomb and buried. It also shows that a heresy known as Eutychianism is false. Now, in Eutychianism, uh, there's the belief, well, there's a failure to maintain the human nature and the divine nature of Christ as uh, two distinct realities. 
and they become kind of blended. The human nature is absorbed by the divine nature. It becomes swallowed up so that it's no longer a, a distinct reality, the one that as we maintain. It also, in these, these verses we're looking at, shows that Nestorianism is false. Now, Nestorianism was a heresy in regard to Jesus that said that his two natures were like two boards, nailed or glued together. They really didn't interpenetrate one another. His human nature and divine nature didn't have really much to do with each other. Uh, there was no communion of the attributes. And another one I can think of is uh, monarchianism, and that's a, a heresy that rejects the Trinity. And it, what it asserts is, well, yeah, there was a Father, and there was a Son, and there was a Holy Spirit, but these were independent manifestations or representations of the one God. So not that all three existed at once. Now, Nestorianism, I think I can see hints of it, especially in the Christmas season, as we're discussing the birth of Jesus. I'll give you an example. I was on an Internet discussion forum uh, this past week, and there was discussion of uh, a baby Jesus. And someone called Mary the mother of God there. And one of the men in the, uh, in the discussion group uh, took exception to that and said, no, she's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus. And he really divided uh, the two natures of Christ. And from his conversation, it was hard to believe that he even thought that God was in the womb of Mary. But what did Elizabeth say when Mary came to her? Did she say, oh, oh you know, why am I so blessed to have uh, the mother of the baby Jesus come to me while the Lord is somewhere else? <laughs> no, Mary was the mother of God. The, the two natures of Christ were united in his conception, and in his womb, he was God. In her womb, Jesus was God. Therefore, to call Mary the mother of God is entirely correct. Mary had God in her belly, in her womb. That 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 was then the uh, the early Christian debate, right? Uh, over the over the uh, Mary, the mother of God. Yes. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of debate over times, and you can see vestiges of that Nestorianism in the Protestant Church today. There's a real hesitancy among many that I've talked to to affirm that Mary was the mother of God and that God was in her womb. But it's kind of interesting, because if God wasn't enfleshed in Mary's womb, then how could he be enfleshed in Jesus? I mean, what's the really difference? Well, what they're denying is that, that, that God was enfleshed in the person of Jesus in her womb. What happened? Did Jesus become God later? Was it after birth? No, it was at birth. Right. And, and, and we get that... Uh... Uh, from this this John text, but also also from as as you mentioned already, Elizabeth, you know, uh, the mother of my Lord, you know, mm -hmm. so good, right? Which is Luke, which a lot of people associate with the Christmas texts and the fourth uh, Sunday in Advent. Okay, what verse were we on? Uh, did you? I think we're getting into fifteen now. Fifteen, yes, that's correct. So John testified; he uh, he witnessed; he martyred concerning Jesus. Now, what's interesting, the word uh, testify, today people widely misunderstand that word. Here in the Bible it says that he martyred, he martyred. And as we can see, John was a martyr because ultimately he was killed, beheaded, because he faithfully proclaimed the word of God. 
in that case, in that instance, he opposed an unscriptural marriage and divorce and condemned adultery. So he is a martyr in a true sense, but he cries, you see, he cries out. This is because John really cared for men. He saw a world, a world in hurt, a world that was lost, a world in ignorance, you know, a world that would be, if they had had Christmas presents at that time, they may have been all caught up in Christmas presents, thinking that peace among men was the meaning of the season. For example, I heard in the song, uh, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Well, no, there is peace on earth, but it's in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Through him, God and man have been reconciled. So when John says in verse 15 that he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, he's speaking of Jesus as God, as the eternal God. Jesus took on flesh in time, but he was has been always the second person of the Trinity, even before there was time. And that's why he surpasses John. He's beyond him. He's beyond every other man. Jesus has the name that's beyond every other name. He has the work of salvation that's beyond every other work, every other conception. John says, from this fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. We receive the blessing of salvation. We receive uh, blessings in our life. We can, we can look in the church and see all the second article blessings there, the forgiveness, the means of grace, the fact that God richly proclaims his grace Every Sunday we hear our sins absolved. Uh, we hear the word of God read and preached. We receive his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. So the one who took on flesh and dwelled among men still dwells among men today, but now he dwells in his word and sacrament. If you want Jesus, don't look for an empty manger. Look for the word of God preached truly. If you want Jesus... Don't look for an empty manger or try to find a cave or a barn where you might have been built. Don't go where the Lord's Supper is celebrated and administered rightly. Is uh, this, this preaching of John the Baptist, um, how does it then relate to the preaching that we have today in, uh, in, in churches? Uh, are pastors essentially preaching the same message of John the Baptist? Yes. Not only did, do we preach the same message of John the Baptist, but Jesus did. John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And look at Jesus. What did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what do pastors preach today? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's here among us. It, it's exactly the same message. I like to say John the Baptist was a good Lutheran. And that is because he preached law and gospel, and he was also sacramental in his preaching. Because what did he do? He preached his word in such a way that the people heard they were sinners and desired that forgiveness. And where did he point them to receive that forgiveness? He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the people flocked to that water that they might receive this forgiveness and know that they were forgiven in God's people. That's why I say he was a good Lutheran. Okay, now here we have this discussion in this text about uh, grace upon grace and grace and truth. Would you, would you talk about that? Yes, grace upon grace. Among men, sometimes we'll say, well, he was very gracious. There might be a situation where there was a little bit of tension. And I can remember once when uh, I was present when two soldiers from World War I met each other. And what, they, and what they didn't know when they first met each other, one of them had served in the German army and the other in the American and I wondered how gracious that situation would be when they 
found this all out. They were, they were happen, ha- happening to talk in a uh, little sitting room right outside my study when I was on my vicarage. And as I listened to them talk, uh, it, they finally came to the realization they'd been on opposing sides in World War One. And one of the men said, well, that was a long time ago. So they were both very gracious in this. Well, you can take that graciousness that was there and, manif- and, and multiply it a trillion times and more because we were enemies of God before Jesus acted in our lives. So these men had been enemies of one another, and yet they were gracious and forgave one another, overlooking, forgetting that which had taken place place in the past. God is rich in grace even beyond that because all our sins were against him. We were enemies of God, enemies of everything meet, right, and salutary. But he sent his son to die for us, to forgive us. And when Jesus came, he had great words of grace and truth. There was no more grace in the world to be found or heard anywhere, anything more than what came from his lips. There he proclaimed that he was the Messiah, that he had come to save them. The redemption of Israel had drawn near. And then it seems in verse uh, uh, 17, we, we, are t- we have this talk about the law given through Moses. Yes, and unfortunately today, many, not many, I shouldn't say many, but uh, at least by some church, bush, bo- church groups, Jesus is seen as a second Moses, an even bigger lawgiver than Moses was. The point that's being made here is not that Moses did not preach or proclaim the gospel, because he did. After all, the divine service of the Old Testament, which we find uh, the the initiation, the the building of the tabernacle, the instructions for that, the rite thereof, we find in the end of Exodus and Leviticus in the first part of Numbers. There, Moses, the great prophet, spoke those words of gospel. But the simple fact is, he also gave us the Ten Commandments, which condemn us. We have all murdered, we have all committed adultery, we have all stolen, we have all coveted. Uh, Now, properly understood, as Jesus taught these things, if we hate a man in our heart, we have murdered him. Therefore, if we have ever, as a child, been furious with our parents, say, as a teenager, then we have murdered our parents in our hearts. If we have ever uh, been enticed by a commercial on TV or a, a magazine on the shelf at a store, or something that's at the movies or on a computer screen, if we've been enticed and desired uh, sexually that person, then we have committed adultery. We have stolen in that we have not given others that which we should. In other words, there are many people who come through our lives each day who have been placed there by God for us to serve, to uh, bestow food upon, uh, clothing, whatever the case may be, it, could, it, it can be anything that we're to give to another person, love or honor. And if we haven't given them that love or honor, then we have stolen from them. And in this day, we're all guilty of coveting in that we see other things and we want those other things. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, it's not uncommon for people to use coveting as a means to motivate them to work. Well, if I want that new boat, then I've got to work harder at work. If I want this new house, then I've got to get a better job. It's always about working to get something else, when in fact God has given us our vocations, our work, to serve others. That means the students in the sixth grade or college students now, whenever anyone's a student, they are preparing 
not that they might further their own life, but that they might go out into the world and serve others. So we can see through that 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 the words that Moses gave us, his law condemns us. So when we think of Moses, we think of that, that law which condemns. Jesus came not bringing us a new law, not as a sterner judge, but he came as one full of grace and truth to give us life and salvation that frees us from the condemnation of the law given through Moses. And then here in verse 18 we have this, uh, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. What is, what is being spoken of in this verse? All right. No one has ever seen the Holy Spirit. No one has ever seen God the Father. The only God we have seen, meaning there men have seen, is Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. So Jesus has not, uh, rather we have not seen the Father and we will not see the Father until Judgment Day, but Jesus proclaims him. I used to put a little diagram on my board that I cribbed from one of my professors in college, <laughs> Professor Muller, and that is the Father sends the Son who sends the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit does his work, he points to the crucified Son. And when the Son does his work of proclaiming the grace of God, he points to the Father. So if you have seen Christ at work, then you see, you understand, you know the Father. But, but the only God which has been manifest to God, to us, is the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But he makes the Father known. And so here we have uh, the, the only revelation of God in the person of Jesus. So if you, if you want to know who God is, you have to, you have to go to Jesus. And where is, where is Jesus given today? Uh, he's, he doesn't reside in the temple or, or uh, in, in, even in the mountains of Colorado or, or some peaceful nature walk, uh, but rather in word and sacrament. Well said. Well, uh, Pastor Dumper, thank you uh, very much for taking us through John chapter 1, and uh, a Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you, Evan. God be with you. You as well.